0: Hot mic. I have a hot mic. Uh, middle C, middle C.
1: Welcome to this modern education podcast that explores learning from the everyday exchange of thoughts and ideas to the theories and practices behind entire systems. Think education is cool? So do we. So we pair two conversations learn about our guests. Then learn from our guests share your takeaways and come back for more you're listening to think pair share with me audrey scott (music) dr matt closer is the founding director of the center for stem education and a faculty member and fellow of the institute for educational initiatives at the university of notre dame A proud graduate of the ACE program, his research focuses on issues of teaching and learning in science classrooms, with a special focus on biology education, as well as the relationship between core instructional practices and student outcomes. Matt's unrivaled enthusiasm for recording this podcast in person encouraged us to venture into the new Remick Family Hall studio for our very first face-to-face recording of Think Pair Share. So, fasten your seatbelts, off we go. Oh, okay. look at this. oh, there
0: he is. Wow. <laughs> I love this. I love this, but... I'm... Welcome to the first
1: ever live Think Pair Share podcast.
0: Wait, this is Think Pair Share? I thought this was the only Murders in the Building podcast. Is Martin Short not going to be here? It's an enormous disappointment. <laughs> no, no, Audrey Scott, host of Think Pair Share. I'm very excited to be part of this critically acclaimed podcast. Although, once I'm on... Well, people will just be critical of it, I'm sure.
1: I love it. No, but in all honesty, thank you very much. This is the first time we're using the Remick Family Hall Studio um, for this podcast, so this is exciting. Well, we started in the pandemic, so we could do something, and yes. it was always via Zoom, but this, an auspicious day.
0: I mean, we're going to go everywhere, right? We're going to talk about John McEnroe and my time with him. We're going to talk about playing keyboard for Bruce Springsteen, which hasn't happened yet, but...
1: Yes, we are going to go everywhere because the theme today is grab bag.
0: It's not a grab bag when we're going to do all of them.
1: If you're up for it, we'll do the whole thing. Uh, I know you kind of know the drill, but we do do a little bit of a fun section at the beginning. Fun being relative, I'm sure.
0: Well, let's let's just kind of set some norms and expectations because you say at the beginning, I'm here. I'm here for the banter and the bits. I like if we have a pie chart, you know, because I'm a STEM guy, so it would be like 90% banter and bits, maybe 10% content on educational issues is that
1: I like it I like uh, it a lot yeah. I that's totally good with me
0: uh sorry listeners if you wanted a lot of content today we're just gonna
1: sit down and, 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 and
0: uh, have fun great. we have an actual bag can, can you put pictures on like online to show that there's an actual bag happening grab bag okay. theme okay you should read this okay Gryffindor Ravenclaw Hufflepuff or Slytherin we're starting with the deep ones wow um I, this is tough. I I feel like there's some redemption in Slytherin. They, now, my kids all love Harry Potter, and they have an aunt that they talk through all the Harry Potter books with. So I know all of these houses have traits, um, and I think Gryffindor is courage, maybe, and Hufflepuff is niceness. I know that's not the actual term, but there's a badger involved, um, Ravenclaw... Um, I think I, I, think I want to go with Gryffindor, mostly so I can be with um, the twins, uh, Fred and George, uh, and, their, and have access to their joke shop. I do often give 10 points, like if someone does something in class, i will say, 10 points for Gryffindor. And I used to get like real laughs, but now that I realize that the books have been out for like 25 years, I get like a muffled groan. <laughs> You know,
1: um, Well, that's what I was a little afraid of with some of these uh, grab bag questions. I'm like, well, I think we're going to see if we're even in the same decade as all the other
0: people. Um, My wife makes fun of me all the time because she's like, you only – I'm like, I love music. But she's like, you only listen to like Springsteen. That's it. That's all – all so you listen to, so you can't say you love music, you know. He's like big in the 70s or 80s, and like so. Maybe these are right up my alley.
1: I'm hoping that they at least uh, touch on a side street or something. Um, okay, shake, shake, shake. Next one. Oh, if you could pass one talent on to your children, what would it be? Oh,
0: wow, I don't know. Talent, uh, that's it's. It's hard to be humble and then say, you have this talent. So if I were my dad, Mm. I wish he would have been able to pass, we'd have these closer family talent shows at Christmas and different things. And he, he's 92 now, but until for a very long time, he would stand on his head and sing on the banks of the Wabash. Now is that not a talent you would want passed along? The answer is yes. Yes, Yes, please. Okay. Well, that just became the one you're going to pass on to you. I I don't have, I think I need to build some up. Upper- if you, It's a good thing this is a podcast because if they could see the twig arms I have, he's not getting up on his hands. He's not standing on his head.
1: There's actually going to be a lot of audio daily double sort of situations okay. where you have an opportunity right. to <laughs> show us or let us hear a little something special from you. Okay. Wonderful. All right. Back to the bag. Did Adam and Eve have a belly button?
0: Great question. You know, this actually comes at the intersection of science and religion, like how we read uh, Genesis and like, are we reading it literally as Catholics or is this, you know, this kind of, how do we think about it contextually and from where we come? And the belly button question, I mean, this, we could go on and talk about evolution and evolutionary history uh I love the question. How much time do we have? And remember, 90 percent of this is going to be bits and banter and 10 percent on educational topics, so we can take this up if you want. I think this is: Back to the grab bag. <laughs> to the grab
1: let's see. Do you have a signature dance move?
0: <laughs> no, I don't.) Um, I get – there's a – it's just this little kind of back leg kick that kind of evolved um, from college as part of uh, the hit band, the, the Meteors. You could check out uh, – if you check out a 1990 – it was just, um, you know, whatever, a band that kind of stormed the campus in spring of 1999. You, you could actually see the cover story on the cover of The Scholastic – In I think it was either February or March, 1999, Um, and it says meteor shower and how this band was taking. We were a drummerless band, Um, and inside you could actually cut out uh, trading cards of each of the the people in the band. Collectors' (laughs) items, Um, a bunch of Keenan Hall guys. I was the A and R man, Um, you know. Widely regarded as the best in in the business at the time, and um, just promoting promoting the work of this this great drummerless band um, that was singing mostly uh, female '80s power ballads. Um, but there were edu- we, we tried to be educative when we performed. Um, sadly, after a, a great run, long several months run. Uh, the band broke up because we couldn't agree over the spelling of the word, yeah. Uh, but that really set, the, it really set the stage for kind of a, a long romance with, um, with music. You know, apparently I don't like music because I only listen to Springsteen, but I think in each of us, there's, you know, this central core. And so that led, um, when I was an ace, to thinking about, well, could we create a an acapella group Ace of Bass, B A S S. Um, I had the name. Uh, I didn't really have anybody else in the group. I thought we'd just do Pinball Wizard. We'd be a one-hit wonder, you know, you know, acapella wise. Um, And then that led later on to the the hit Education Graduate School band at Stanford University when I was in graduate school called. The Stanford Deviations. And we played some, you know, uh, we had a rooftop concert, kind of like the Beatles, uh, the rooftop at Saris for a school of education end of the year party where we got Chipotle and uh, sang some songs. I was just more of a guest artist with with them. I sang a a couple songs, but... They had a drummer. They had a legit, They were a very legitimate drummer full band. Um, John Walinski, who's a professor, there, a great guitarist, and then some other grad students. Um, uh, I have to um, get those albums. We no, you know, it's not. It's not about the money, Audrey. It's not about the fame. It was about the music, and it was about the fans. I love it. I'm a man with principles. <laughs> um, what
1: song do you know word for word? And what will you share with us right now? I'm assuming it's a Bruce Springsteen song. I mean, yeah,
0: wait, right. Uh, I mean, the greatest, I think one of the greatest songs ever written was Born to Run, but it's not my favorite Bruce song. That's Bobby Jean. But I think if I had to say what song do I know every lyric to, would be Thunder Road, which I sang with the Stanford Deviations. And then my wife and I saw Bruce in San Jose when I was out at grad school, and then we saw him. He was in Rome on our honeymoon by accident. We just stumbled upon it, and he ended the concert with an acapella version of Thunder Road, just him and his guitar, and it was the last song played at our um, wedding reception. We just got tickets to Bruce and the East Street Band are on, doing their last tour, so we got tickets in Detroit and Milwaukee. We're very excited for next spring the priority all sold out i'm gonna have to i know some a and r men from my meteors days that i could okay. maybe industry ties yeah. i appreciate that as long as you know like it's not about you it's not about me it's not even about bruce it's about the music and the fans okay yeah. <laughs> got it
1: back to the grab bag <laughs> <laughs>
0: Remember 90 percent bits and banter. It's 10%. gonna be it.
1: Uh, if roses are red, why are violets blue? Mm. Another sciencey one.
0: Well, why we see blue? Why the sky is blue? That's yeah, all like refraction and light. Um, so we could talk about that, but um, or we could
1: show James Will's video asking you. Doctor Closer, the science professor.
0: <laughs> <laughs> wow! During the pandemic, there was a time I don't. I think it started maybe slightly before, where um, James Will, son of uh, Tim and Lindsay Will, awesome teachers in themselves, ace teachers. Uh, he would have these great questions, and so I'd get these little video chats of like, Uncle Matt, why is it the sky blue? Or um, and so then we tried and put together a little video. Uh, had its own little jingle at the start Matt 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 closer the science poser uh, and we just try and figure out together like why is the science blue and and so we had these back and forth videos no,
1: they're so cute yeah. they're so cute and honestly that we will get into that is that that you are able to make science relatable and fun for kids or just you know adults that you know maybe don't Find that to be their, you know, niche. But um, so I really admire that about you, and I and I love seeing those videos and love talking about that kind of stuff because I think that's one of the things that gets people excited about science and just learning because they don't see it as a barrier.
0: Well, I mean, we, in all seriousness, um, we don't need bits and banter to make science fun and interesting. Like it's it's not something we have to like artificially inflate. Because like the world is fascinating and kids are curious and adults are curious, but we have to allow them to be and kind of reframe science as, yes, there are these core ideas and they're important. And we have to help – that helps us move along our understanding of the world. But also um, there's more to like – position young people as doers of science and wonder and do the figuring out for themselves and make sense of it for themselves, that in, in the doing of that, it becomes fun. All right. Well, we'll chat a little bit more about okay. that. I don't know how many more grab bags we have, but we'll, we'll go
1: for a few more. Okay. How many more do we have, Let's do you think?
0: See. Oh, there's just one. I have one more over here.
1: What business pitch would you make if you were on Shark Tank? Shark Tank.
0: <sighs> okay. So um, I have been known, this is uncanny that this is actually the question. Listeners of Think Pair Share, this is not a plant. Um, I would probably pitch, restauranteering is, I th- hear, a very difficult life. But um, i avoid always, uh, at our wedding, married to a lovely English teacher at St. Joe High School. At our wedding, we didn't have cake. Um, Lauren doesn't Really care for cake, and so but we both love s'mores. So we had s'mores, and so I uh, feel like I don't drink coffee. I know, right? And so that's awkward. And so like I, I get very nervous going into Starbucks because they're like, "Do you want a, you know, tall venti grande?" I'm like, "Medium and like venti." I just give me a medium. I don't know. I don't understand. Uh, I don't have the Starbucks schema. People are like, "Oh, let's go grab coffee like professionally." And then I have to kind of say, okay. And then we get there and I order the hot chocolate like I'm 12 because they don't drink coffee. And then they ask, do you want whipped cream? And I say, yes, like, of course. So I want to start a place that embraces kind of, so it's called s'more than coffee. And they do serve coffee, but Smore than that. Each table has a small little wood-burning fire with a little mesh over it. And um, you can order uh, s'mores so that you don't have to drink coffee if you're going on a date, a professional thing. You can just – there's a third space to focus on, the making of the s'more. And um, there's like – you can get Rolos or peanut butter cups or Andy's mints or York peppermint patties as part of your – like that's a premium s'more. Or if you order like a, mm-hmm. a cup of coffee or a hot chocolate, it automatically comes with a complimentary – regular-sized you know, jet puff marshmallow that you can roast. But then you can order, like, the family basket of, you know, s'mores or, like, the, the s'more the size of your head, like a huge marshmallow. And then in the back there would be, like, the serpentine bar. So they'd actually they'd serve alcohol, but then you don't want to have alcohol too close to the fire. So the fire there would be well-recessed, and you'd have these telescoping forks where you could roast your marshmallow Um, it's more than coffee. Yeah.
1: Now all I need to do is book you a spot on Shark Tank.
0: (laughs) (laughs) The model is solid. I think it's unique. I think it's got a great name. The name actually on all of these things, just like Ace of Base, all the name always comes first, then the idea, which is probably not how business is supposed to work. But it's much more fun, I think. Yeah. I like it. It's a,
1: a spot to jump off um, for all your idea generation. Um, okay, but I couldn't let you go without asking you a Star Wars trivia question oh. or two. Rumor has it that you are quite the fan. I am. I like Star Wars, but I don't know much about it. Okay. So I af- these are probably relatively easy because I'm going with like the mm-hmm. core Star Wars movies. <laughs> Not all the 20,000 have come afterwards. Okay, so I don't know. What were Luke's aunt and uncle's jobs on Tatooine?
0: They were moisture farmers. Shoot, he got it. In Peru and Uncle Owen, right? Yeah. That's true. Yes, because they're in the desert of Tatooine, and so that's a high commodity is moisture farming. So
1: you are good. <laughs> Given that, if you lived on Tatooine,
0: what line of work would you be in? I'd probably you know, just waste time, have fun wasting time trying to hit womp rats um they're more no more than two meters that's a, that's a line from the movie if you didn't know that yeah
1: i thought you were going to say for a quick second that you would waste time at whose cantina
0: what's the real name of the cantina the real name of the cantina i think you um at Moss Isley? yeah i mean that's the that that's is. the city
1: <laughs> but apparently there is some other guy that, um, the establishment's alternate name is Chalman's Cantina. Apparently, oh. that was the he was a Wookiee that owned it.
0: Interesting. <laughs> Who, knew? Who knew? I did not know that.
1: Okay. Well, thank you for uh, thank you for playing along with all those. Oh, I do have one more. Sorry, one more. Do you know the name of the song that's playing when they first walk in? And can you hum us a few of the notes
0: in the cantina? Mm-hmm. <laughs> You're really putting all your eggs. You watched seven <laughs> minutes of the video just to get all your question. Perfect. <laughs> <laughs> uh, it's not very original name. Cantina Band Song. <laughs> yeah, I was going <laughs> to just say it's the Cantina Band, but.
1: Um, great. Thank you very much. That was awesome. I do ap- appreciate all those, uh, your sense of humor and, um, you're playing along with the first ever grab bag. So.
0: Well, it's not about me, Audrey. It's about the music and the fans, yeah. right? Should I just come in
1: on fans, or should I go ahead and try for the music part too? Is it too much? I'm not sure. Okay, well, we'll work on it. We'll work on it. Um, oftentimes, I ask people how they kind of came here to Notre Dame, and I know that you were here, and then you went away, and then you came back. But can you kind of walk us through a little bit of um, a little bit of that journey for you, I guess, and then we can tie other things yeah. to that.
0: So I'm from Warsaw, Indiana. It's very important to put the Indiana part because I worked with someone here, Anna, for se- several years, and I had talked about Warsaw, and she thought it was Warsaw, Poland, for a very long time, and then eventually asked me, like, How, so when did you come to the United States or something? You know, was, and I was like, oh, so it's a very small town in northern Indiana. There's a lot of town. There are a lot of towns in Indiana named. There's uh, Mexico, Peru, Warsaw. So um, I guess that's a thing we do here. So went to uh, Warsaw High School and then came to Notre Dame, was very fortunate to be able to come to Notre Dame. Um, it's kind of always a dream. And Got to live out that dream and it did not disappoint, but wanted to give back. I was kind of destined for medical school and had applied and gotten into medical schools and then deferred to do ACE because I. I was so thankful for the education that Notre Dame had given me and was placed in Birmingham, Alabama um, on Wonder Lane. Uh, So we used to do little voiceovers of like the Wonder Years and everything since we were on Wonder Lane. It was great. Um, Taught math and science at Holy Family High School and finished uh, teaching again, was ready to go to med school and just felt like there was some unfinished business, you know, that I still had questions Uh, in the back of my mind and had the great opportunity uh, to work with Doc Doyle, who had been a mentor and is just kind of one of the smartest but also kindest uh, man I've ever met. And so he uh, allowed me really to come work with him for several years um, on the academic side and then the pastoral side with John Stodd. And that really cemented you know, why do I keep putting off medical school, which is a great profession, an honorable profession. I have many friends who do it. And I think I I think I would have enjoyed it, but there was still something that just kept asking questions about education and science education. And so I finally realized like, well, maybe that's how I can kind of live the vocation and be engaged in schools and educational research and at that intersection of of research and practice. So went to graduate school out in California, and then came back um, in 2012.
1: Stanford, did you like it out there?
0: Oh, seven, you know, 72 degrees and sunny, like, every day. Like, I love the weather. I loved Stanford. I had um, some unbelievable faculty mentors in Brian Brown and Rich Shavelson and Jonathan Osborne, Hildeborko Pam Grossman. They were just all phenomenal, and very supportive. And the cohort and community I had, they really kind of pushed my thinking and helped move me forward. We're very glad that you came back this way.
1: When you were in the classroom with ACE, was there stuff that you started to say, hey, these students
0: need... A uh, better teacher? <laughs> I looked at me and I was like, um, what they really need is a better teacher, right? Um, and how do I get better? And how do I think about getting better? You know, I was obviously trying and doing the best I could, but thinking about, well, what what does good teaching look like that goes beyond just having good, high-quality teacher-student relationships, which that I think I was able to foster. But it it didn't matter kind of what context they were in. Um, It was more the milieu of like, how do we think what schooling means and how does school science look? And is that different from doing regular science? And and it is in a way, but also we don't want to totally close off that we can't, as I mentioned earlier, position young people as doers of science. And that doesn't mean just kind of open discovery, but like how can we think about the world? How can we see phenomena and help have kids do the talking and thinking around um, things they see in their world? How can we help them figure out and make sense of specific um, instances that they could then generalize and abstract to and have a greater kind of understanding of these these major accounts of, of the world? But not only that, how do we come to know what we know in science? And that sounds like highfalutin, but if we are doing science and engaging in the practices of science, it really is um, coming to know what are these big ideas and how have we come to know them? Some of my work more recently has looked at adapting primary journal articles and that are developmentally beyond what high school or middle school students can do. But they really, if we can make them developmentally appropriate, open a world to like, oh, these are the many methods and the creative ways in which scientists engage the world. And we have this idea of the scientific method. It doesn't exist. There are many methods. And so for young people to see, like, here are ways in which we can question the world, that opens up new ways for themselves to ask questions and and investigate and explore the world around them and then create these explanations that are really meaningful and transferable over time. Great. Thank you. Did you say children as doers of science? Right. So imagine like a, a 1950s industrial model where you have 30 or 40 kids in a room and they're lined up in rows and the teacher is opening their head and thinking, I'm stuffing knowledge in, right? Um, And we've had kind of a revolution in cognitive science to know that that doesn't work, that's not helpful. And it's not that we have to, like, students have to be doing science fair projects. I We can talk about that a separate time in my feelings about science fair and what they do to kids. But um, we do want to position them as question askers. Like, How do we get them to ask questions, but then actually address content and ideas for which they're asking questions? Like, That's really important. And how do we put them in a position to investigate the world and think about how would I investigate this? What kind of claims would I make? How could I construct explanations and arguments that can be communicated to others. Um, that's that's what I mean by like being doers of science, that they're working together and collaboratively toward kind of building knowledge about the world around them. Okay.
1: Touching on the science teaching practice serving a continuous improvement cycle, is that to better
0: inform the practice? We're working at this intersection, this like uh, an academic would use the term nexus to make it sound really important probably, but we're working at the intersection of Um, that we think research is important to have an empirical basis for the types of claims we want to make. So like, what do we see as high leverage or core instructional science practices? By that, which things can teachers do? Routines and skills and how they interact with students, what are those practices that teachers do that make the biggest impact on student interest, learning, um, and ability to engage in science? So- We don't want to just kind of guess. We want to have empirical basis for this. So therein, the research helps discover and identify things like core practices as well as teacher education pedagogies. How do we best teach these things to teachers? Or how do we help in-service teachers with professional development or professional learning opportunities? So we're amassing all of this empirical data, but it's also informed by Um, the wisdom of practice and experience. Like we don't want to be blind to like these are systems and they have many variables. So we might be able to control variables in these studies, which is really important. But then also, what does it look like in classrooms with teachers? And how does the wisdom of practice and the experience of others relate to asking new questions and getting new empirical data? And they're kind of always informing each other back and forth.
1: You're back here as the director for the Center for STEM Education. And as that, are there things you want to accomplish?
0: Yeah, I think of my center hat, directing the center, as separate from my individual research hat, which, you know, that research focuses on teacher education, core instructional teaching practices, as well as um, biology education, and, and some recent work on thinking about like narratives and the narrative effect in how that helps us come to understand science ideas and more about science. So that's kind of like Matt closer, the faculty member, and then. Um, those things feed into the goals for the center. Um, but we really see ourselves at the intersection of research and practice that where all of the work we're doing is not just kind of in the ivory tower. and there's wonderful researchers who who don't just focus in the ivory tower. Don't get me wrong there, but we're just making an explicit attempt to do research that also then draws on, classroom engagement, and then feeds back into what happens in classrooms. So as a center, as a whole, we're kind of existing at that intersection of research and the professional formations of teachers. Um, So we really focus on teacher as the mediating variable. That's kind of our center-wide focus so that we can have this exponential impact Over time, since we can't get into we're a small center and we can't get into every classroom and work with students individually, and we learn so much from teachers and they're so powerful and amazing that that's like the mediating variable we want to work with. So it's kind of working with the professional formation of teachers and doing that through research and and programs, and we have several programs that do that, but also then this final element of how do we think about it in light of the university's mission and. It's probably been said too, too many times, but um, how do we make STEM education a force for good so that it's not just this um, value neutral proposition, but we take teaching science, technology, engineering, mathematics, integrated STEM, all of this as um, a meaningful opportunity to help young people flourish and to acknowledge their dignity. And, and it's an act of equity. And so how do we, how do we bring out... Uh, the best in young people to explore this world around them, the mathematical world, um, the scientific world, to construct solutions that are meaningful and kind of move away from like the egg drop or the balsa wood bridge that are often content lean, not only content lean, but also like I don't often find myself really perplexed by getting an egg not to drop or break when I drop it from my ladder, right? That's like not super meaningful. Like, Let's put them in a meaningful context because young people can be powerful and um, we can help shape them um, in ways that they give back later on and see how these disciplines can be used for good. Okay. Great. Thank you. You help teach the ACE teaching fellows. Why is that um,
1: work important for you to do and, and what value do you find in that?
0: Oh, I mean, that's one of the, it's the busiest time of the summer because we have our center STEM teaching fellows program where we bring cohorts from all over the United States, which just is an amazing experience to engage with them and learn with them. Uh, But it happens to overlap with the Ace Teaching Fellows program, and uh, so getting to teach the middle school and high school teachers. And they're also a phenomenal pre-service group that like, they are bringing creativity and great content knowledge and helping kind of shape that of like, how do we harness all of this into a model or a framework that is effective and has been proven by research to be effective. And so we use Mark Winchettel's ambitious science teaching framework and we adapt it and, and make it useful to teachers. That's the reason why we're here, right, is to help support and develop great STEM teachers. And so working with those science teachers, I I got the opportunity to teach for just a short, like three-day workshop, uh, the elementary science teachers. And that was so much fun this summer. It was the first time I got to do it. And just seeing them evolve, as, as you had mentioned, like some people have a fear of science or mathematics. And Patrick Kirkland does a great job with the mathematics piece. So many of them were like, yeah, I don't know. I can't remember learning science in the elementary level, and I'm kind of nervous about it. So then, as we see from the national data, it just gets pushed away. Mm -hmm. Um, So just how can we get teachers to embrace it that we don't have to have all the answers, and we don't have all the answers to teach elementary science, but we can help kind of raise questions and focus on some of these big core ideas and engage in the practices together with our students to come to a better understanding of the world.
1: I love how your eyes light up. Yes, I I think. Do you miss being in the classroom at all on a more regular basis?
0: I do. Teaching is a lot about decision making. Oh, I hear that from a student. So like what decision? How will I change the question I'm about to ask? Or how will the lesson plan be affected? It's just different from analyzing and, and learning from video. So I think both are really helpful and important. Yeah, that's great. Well, I hope you get to do both. In this age of
1: social media, we hear a lot about influencers what has been maybe a couple of the things that have been the biggest influence on you?
0: I don't understand the influencers thing. So yeah, I told you I just listened to Bruce Springsteen. So I don't like that people are like paid or like you. I know that like YouTube influencers or something. So I don't know what they're doing. You so. could be an influencer, I think. It's not so much about me, it's about the music and the fans, really. Sorry. Yeah. <laughs> um, right, wait, is this
1: your John McEnroe story time?
0: Oh, we didn't even get to John. That was crazy. I got well, it was just like if I had a grab bag slip, that's like, OK, talk about your jobs growing up. My first job was at an ice cream shop, the flagpole. Mr. Rowe, our neighbor, they had bought it in War Sunday. And they made the best ice cream. We made all our own ice cream. It was a great experience. And then I said I worked at Pizza Hut. I worked some landscaping. All of them, I guess, an, in, an influencer. Mr. Rowe, he gave me all my jobs. So um, thank you. But then in college, A member of the lead singer of the hit band, The Meteors, which was on the cover of the Scholastic, uh, Eric Robin. we call him Hoey. Hoey had this great job. You may have heard of a little broadcasting company called NBC, they do the Notre Dame football games. Well, apparently, and this may be apocryphal, I don't know, apparently back in the day when NBC first came to do Notre Dame games they needed runners, like student runners to pick people up at the airport, get sandwiches, carry the cameraman's um, accoutrement, and um, do just all the things. So there was someone who worked in the athletic department as a student worker, I think, uh, I think it was Hip, who was also in the hip band, the Meteors. He was in charge of vocal percussion. Um, I think it was like his older brother or something, like worked there. And they said, "Oh, we need some students." And he was like, "Well, I'll do it." You know, so game day, he would work for NBC Sports, and then he lived in Keenan Hall, where I lived. He would he passed that job down, and it got to Hoey, my RA, who then passed the job down to me. So. For a couple of years, I'd be on the sidelines of Notre Dame football games, like watching it right there while holding the cameraman's things or, uh, but then at the end of my first year, I said, oh, I really love doing this. Do you have any like summer sporting events where you need runners? We don't have that, but uh, we need some people for the French Open in Wimbledon. I was like, yes. Um, so... I, at the first one, it's a lot of running, same thing, getting sandwiches. But then at the French, I had an opportunity to do like uh, a little like research. So all those kind of wacky facts where it's like, um, this is the first left-hander over six foot two who had three aces on a Tuesday when the temperature was above 67 degrees. It was fun. and that I really love that. So I was hoping, like, maybe I'll get to do a little more of that at Wimbledon. And the French, it's like laid back. You could kind of go anywhere. There's baguettes everywhere and pain au chocolat, you know, eating every morning. That's the only French I know. Do and they have then, s'mores? <laughs> um, That'd be a great expansion idea, Uh, first more than coffee. And then we get to Wimbledon and it's very like, you know, it's very, there are places you can go, places you can't with your pass, and it's like much more stiff and upright. So I was hoping I'd get to do some research. But then I drew the, um, since this is going to be publicly available, I guess the long end of the straw, uh, where I had to be John McEnroe's assistant for the two weeks. Now, John McEnroe is an amazing player, and I think the best tennis broadcaster there is because he calls it how it is. He knows tennis. He loves tennis. Like between shoots, he would just go out to the practice courts. And I m- remember him hitting with Andy Roddick when Andy Roddick was a teen and just always wanting to play tennis. But he just had, you know, he has this kind of bad boy personality, no rules. And he was a god at Wimbledon. So, like, when he walked places, every like, these um, kind of hillsides would just like stop and applaud and he'd wave to him. He's very nice to them and everything. Um, but he just had a different way, like he couldn't be contained, right? So when you have to be in a booth at a certain time in a certain place with certain clothes on, like that NBC just needed that to happen and so they needed someone to remind him like, okay, you can't be playing tennis or getting a massage, like you need to put a tie on and like be in the booth in five minutes. And then you'd get there and you'd be amazing, right? He, you know, liked things like um, a certain way. And so I literally had to follow, but not like too closely. So like he knew I was assigned to him, but because he could go anywhere, he could just go in the player's locker room, which I had no access to. He could go in like, you know, the Royals box, I'm sure if he wanted to. So he would like make it a profession to lose me. And then there's all these tunnels everywhere. And so I'm like, I'm bribing all of the guards with sandwiches. And pins and just being like, I know you can't let me in, but like when I come by, just tell me, is he in there? Is he not in there? And, you know, cause he just wanted to be free and go play tennis. And so, um, I made friends with all the guards and, um, my first task for him, which I later found out was a total hoax, and uh, he was like, uh, I was like, okay, Mr. McEnroe, uh, I'm assigned to you. I'm going to keep my distance, and, but if you need anything, I'm here, you know? And he's like, uh, yeah, I need peanut M&Ms, but only the green and uh, mint, mint wax dental floss uh, before we go on air. It was like an hour. i thought, like, okay, I got it. you know. So I'm like sorting out the green MMs and like mint wax dental floss, like you cannot find easily in, in the yeah. village of Wimbledon, right? You know. And so like, he was totally just like messing with me. Um, I, I got it though. I got it. There. But um, so, it, but it ended up with there was a rain delay. It was a S- Sampras's final Wimbledon victory. is playing Patrick Rafter. I remember it very clearly. And uh, he went in the player's lounge to hang out with them during the whole rain delay. And then they're like, okay, we're coming back on in 20 minutes. We're going to do some pregame. It looks like weather's clearing up. So go get John. It's like, I'll give him a few more minutes. He'll, you know, and then I'll go get him. I had finally made friends with, you know, the guard. He's like, I just go in, you know, there's only two players left. It's the last day. So I go in, he is on the massage table, (laughs) passed out, getting a massage, Good for him, you know. He we're in this long rain delay, and I'm like, Mister Mackendrell, we're we're gonna start in like ten minutes. And like grunts and like. <sighs> Uh, like oh, but he was very nice. Very and then like hops off, you know, really? okay. drops tail, throws his suit on, pulls his tie out of his, and then got in the the booth and he was amazing. And so I got to watch the final from center court booth, you know, in the back, back, background. But like I was there and watching it, and it was a phenomenal. Experience. And he was very, very kind. He might have been you know aloof, but I can't blame him because people were just always following him.
1: Yeah, and, uh, people are always. All re- sounds like he had. You know. A good
0: relationship with you. Yeah, so I get a Christmas card from him every year. No, not at all. <laughs> no, no. He, I don't think he ever knew my name. <laughs> that's 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 probably for the better.
1: Well, that's cool though. That's really good. Yeah. Um, and to hear you say that he was nice so many times, I don't. I think that might break a stereotype for uh, uh, Mr. Met.
0: When his kid showed up, so he had. A, he was married to a rock, literally a rock star, Patty Smith. Right? Yeah. <laughs> His kids would show up, and he would—he was kind of curmudgeonly, you know, aloof, like I said. And then his kids would show up, and he was just like the nicest, most outgoing person. His kids, you know, he was—he would interact with them. So it was very stressful. Like I'm sure, it was. Um, but it was great.
1: But worth it in the end, I hope. Yes. A character builder. Yes. Okay. Okay. Good. So tell me about what you're working on now. What? What's something new you guys are working on?
0: So taking off like the center hat, Matt, you know, directing the center and then thinking about my own kind of research and work has a couple lines I mentioned, I think, like teacher education and I have great collaborators. There are many people thinking about high quality teacher education as well as core practice work that's kind of always been there. But I also have this line that I kind of keep alive and really enjoy in biology education. And over the last four or five years, it really started with my dissertation and thinking about Science is rich and full of, of texts. If you look at scientists and how they spend their time, they spend much more time reading and talking about journal articles than actually running experiments, right? So, um, But how are texts used in classrooms? And if you look at the traditional textbook these thousand page tomes, especially biology, that are expository and vocabulary laden and really lexically dense, hard to get through. And it should just be a tool. I'm not saying get rid of textbooks, but they can be a tool that teachers can use um, to provide knowledge when needed. And they provide this kind of final form knowledge. Uh, But recently we've been thinking about narrative and how we're primed as young people as young as three, four, or five to understand narrative arcs and story. And there's a, a great scientist who turned movie producer, and you probably probably know him, Audrey Scott, host of Think, Pair, Share, um, who talks about how we shouldn't be homo sapiens, we should be homo neris. Like we live and make meaning of our life through stories and narratives. And yet we don't often think about the story of science. And so there's one way curricularly where we can create these kind of stories of science and narrative arcs and storylines which is a lot of the current work in science education, but also there are these like actual stories of science. So um, I, I loved the movie Hidden Figures and the story of like you learned some science ideas, but also about science and its affordances and huge constraints and inequities and things. But like, what are those stories? And each time we build new knowledge in science, there's a story behind how did that, scientist? How did she come to, to ask that question? How did she and her grad students and other scientists come to explore those ideas? Um, what's the story behind that? And, and they're really found in journal articles, but hidden in this guise of like, well, this is fact and it, you know, we knew it all along and there was no you know, hesitancy, and, but it's this ebbs and flows. So that's a long way of getting to this idea of like how could we bring some of these narratives into science classrooms and if we are more interested in stories and if we have a schema for learning through stories, might there not be opportunities at the middle and high school level where we don't think about narrative and story to complement and supplement many of these expository type and informational texts? Um, that are still like nonfiction, but have a more narrative arc. So we're running kind of a whole slew of of qualitative and quantitative um, studies and experiments where we're having students engage with um, expository 15-minute uh, videos of certain uh, on certain topics. And then um, other students are randomized into conditions with narrative uh, stories that have the same kind of ideas and topics. And then we give them a battery of tests like, which one do you find more interesting and engaging? And we have reliable scales, but then also comprehension questions and like this idea. So if these ideas, these expository declarative ideas – are embedded and wrapped in a narrative, the actual story of how the scientists came to understand this, are they better able to piece together those ideas and use them more? And so we're finding out some, we're we're still in process, but finding out some interesting things of how could we create suites of texts and genres exposing students that might work more in terms of engagement and interest but also have kind of cognitive affordances as well to pair with many of these other informational texts. So it's been a lot of fun working with Mike Shopiak and Katherine Wagner through all of this. So yeah.
1: You know, I love stories. And I think stories, as you said, help people connect and learn um, and remember and have an impact. So I hope to hear the follow-up on that. I often ask if people are hopeful. We joke that it's an exciting time for science, but I don't know if, if hope is necessarily the right word in this context. But you also talked about work at Notre Dame being a force for good in the world. Um, is there a is there a hope for you in that?
0: I'm so fortunate to work here because of the community and the people and people who want to work together on this shared mission. So in that sense, yes, I think there's a hope. The hope being how can we create more specific and concrete ways for Um, schools to see STEM as a force for good, that if you break that down, and we've done this before for some professional development in our excellence in teaching conference, like all the parts of STEM as a force for good have to be there. Like You can't be content lean. It has to be faithful and have integrity to science content, math content, engineering practices. And then a force is like, how do we position? Um, young people to be a, uh, um, people of change like um, that they can be influencers in their classroom, but also in their own minds and, and change and grow. And then for good, like what are the goods? How do we impact our community and so that take like it's one thing to say this conceptual framework to teachers and you're like, yes, I want to buy into this. What does it look like? What models exist that are out there? How can we chart those and find those? And decompose those key elements so that other teachers can apply those in their own context. But also then how can we create opportunities for teacher training? And here's where all the pieces intersect of teacher formation and pre-service teacher training to position them to be able to do uh, this well and have identifiable pieces. And but ultimately, you know, although the teacher is a mediating variable, always keeping sight on young people that they can explore the world that they feel they have agency and can ask questions of the world around them. They see themselves more as more than test takers or you know a cog in a potential uh, economic chain of like we need more STEM careers. like if that's where you think you want to flourish, great. but like there's more to it than that. And so if if we can engage young people in asking questions and pursuing answers and thinking um, deeply together, about the world around them, and that they can be this force, this agent of change, using the STEM disciplines plus the other content areas, um, then I, I think we have started to make uh, a contribution to STEM education more broadly.
1: Is there an element of either Catholic social teaching or human flourishing that enters into that?
0: When we talk about equity and we talk about a force for good, we have drawn on, and we're continuing to elaborate on. Um, a framework that stems from Catholic social teaching. Really recognizing these two prime uh, tenets of respecting the dignity of every every individual and that Catholic social teaching is how we relate to others socially, right? So that we're also promoting the common good. So from those two tenets fall all of these other pieces um, related to like having rights and responsibilities, um, empowering the marginalized and vulnerable. And those are pieces that we now see curricular ways and instructional ways that we can like live out this STEM as a force for good uh, mantra. But what, what we think is exciting and, and hopeful for all sectors is um, these might have different languages or our foundation might be in Catholic social teaching for these principles and that resonates so strongly for Catholic schools. Mm-hmm. But it also does service to public and charter contexts as well as we think about the dignity of the individual and promoting the common good, that they could see that as a, an on-ramp to doing some of this work as well, a really action-oriented equity framework in STEM education.
1: Thank you. Thank you so much. I want to say thank you so much for your time and your generosity and all the smiles.
0: Of... Thank you. How, how did it feel being in person? Harder? Easier?
1: Um, it was fun to be in person. Yes. I love it. Okay.
0: I have about five more bits. <laughs> bit say,
1: more. Um, but thank you so much for everything, thank Matt. Thank you. Thank it was, you. It's been a, a ton of fun. Thanks.
0: Thank you. Thank you. The Wait, it's
1: all about the, the bits fun. and the what?
0: The banter. The bits and the banter. The and the banter.
1: And then it's really just about the music. It's the
0: music and the fans.
1: Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks. All right. Bye. And thank you all for joining us for Think Pair Share. If you enjoyed this episode, head on over to Apple Podcasts to subscribe, rate, and leave a review. It's very much appreciated. Check out our website at ieindedu forward slash media for this and other goodies. Thanks for listening. And for now, off we go.